welcome back. I am here today with former remote viewer, Lynn Buchanan. Lynn, welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is an honor, really. Thank you. Well, you 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 you're, you're making me feel a little bit too good here. I think you know I'm just I'm just building up this show, but I really I really appreciate you spending your time talking about the program. And and, and by the way, thank you for your service as well. I former military guys never really say that to each other, but uh, no. <laughs> but you know I'm going to say it anyway because it sounds like you've had a really really interesting career. So with that. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your military background? You know, when did you go in the military and how did you ultimately end up in the unit? Okay. I was out of high school, went into the military and went into guided missiles. And the analog computer systems that ran them back at this time, they didn't have the digital systems. I was in there for three years, came out, started filling some time at a reserve unit for a helicopter unit in Texas, and going to college. I was out for 12 years. When I went back in, I was one day too old, they told me, to go in as an officer. So I had to go back in as enlisted, went back in, and by that time I had become a linguist, fluent in, in German. And so the recruiter not only told me I was one day too old to become an officer, he also said, we'll just send you to the Language Institute, you'll test out because you're fluent, and we'll send you to Germany. and. As the Army does, they sent me to the Language Institute, stuck me in Russian, where I stayed for a year and a half, and sent me to Japan. <laughs> of course, of course. Of course. And then when I came back from Japan, I went to more advanced Russian school and then went to Germany. And I was in Germany at the field station in Augsburg, Germany. But just and level set, what, what year is this at this point? Uh, this is um, 97, no, 80, 87, I'm sorry. Okay, so it's, I want to say the, was it Noble Archer was like 83 or something like that. Is that the right, where they had that big strategic war game? So you're you're kind of near the height. A little bit as the height of the Cold War is starting to, it's still pretty high, but I think 86 was probably the height and it's starting to. Yeah. And uh, when I got there, they had changed it to Reforger, Return of Forces to Germany. And because I was fluent and had the clearances, they sent me out of Reforger every year. Uh, And they sent. And just just for the audience, that's where they had a massive exercise where they would demonstrate to the Soviets effectively and also train yeah. U.S. forces to deploy you know, forces from the United States to Germany right. in the in the event of a incursion across the Fulda Gap. That's right. And, Which the Fulda uh, Gap's in Germany. It's the 
the cor- main corridor where, sorry, I'm, we're, we're talking to, you That's know, good. yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, my unit, I was, in, I was in the 11th armored cavalry regiment. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So that unit was the first unit that would alert us forces that Soviets were coming through that, that corridor in the yeah. event of a invasion across Germany. You know, on those, uh, on those games like that, they have one U.S. They divide the U.S. troops up. Some are Red Army and some are Blue Army. And the Red Army are the enemies. They try to infiltrate into Germany and all that. And then the Blue Army tries to protect Germany from them. And I got into the Blue Army every time over in Red Army territory. Uh, we were in a, what's called an ASA unit that works behind enemy lines. And so we were stuck over there in, into the red territory all the time, even though we were blue army and we were infiltrating the enemies as, you know, as they came across. And the Germans take part in this too. The German army takes part in this too. So, yeah, it was time over there, and I was there for four years. Uh, During that time, I was working computer operations and doing intercept operations where we intercept foreign traffic and, you know, do intelligence reports. Because the had me doing computer operations and computer programming. They stuck me onto a special project where they needed a program that would take the 12 different countries that were stationed there at, at the field station and let their computers talk to each other. And so I got the job of doing that and uh, wrote the program. And this one other sergeant had wanted that job, and I got selected over it. So the day came when I was to demonstrate the program, and I got everything all set up with the computer and everything, went to the restroom to make sure there were no wrinkles in my uniform and my hair was straight and all this, you know. Walked back in. And there were these generals, top generals from 12 different countries. And so I gave my little song and dance and turned around, hit the enter key to show the program. The computer went dead. And they all started laughing at me. And I looked around. This other sergeant was at the back door and he mouthed, gotcha and turned around and walked off. I got flaming, flaming mad. No, I try to never get mad. All of my life, I've had what's called PK incidents. If I get highly emotional or especially very angry, you've heard of uh, poltergeist kids? No, no, no. Poltergeist kids are those kids that things fall off shelves every time they get emotional and all that. And the ones that get the main press are the ones that have 
mental disturbances and all that, but it actually happens with a lot of kids. Hmm. And I was one of those kids. And when I got flaming angry, the entire field station went down and was down for a an amount of time that is still classified. And you know, everyone was taking the shuttle to work every day and carrying their little crossword puzzle books and everything else sitting in there, making it look like it was business as usual. And so anyway, there at that meeting, this one captain in the U.S. Army who was with the Intelligence and Security Command wanted to see that many generals in one place. So he stepped in the door and he had been trained by General Stubblebine, who was head of the Intelligence and Security Command, to spot mental ability people, psychics, PK people, and all that. And he saw what happened. He reported me. And about two months later, General Stubblebine came out to install a new commander at the unit. When he did, he got there. They called me in and they said, report to the general. I don't know what you did, but report to the general. Uh, okay. And so Which, I walked in. Just to, just to stop for a second. When you yeah. said you took the field station down, what, is that, what does that mean? All the computers in the field station went down. Okay. So it was like a human EM. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm trying okay. to find words for it. EMP pulse, yeah. Uh-huh. Sort of the same, now, yeah. And when you say PK, you mean psychokinesis? Psychokinesis, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then just for the audience, just if you could just define exactly what that means from a military perspective. From a military perspective, it's, it's not believed in. Uh, from the common terminology of it is mind over matter. Okay. All right, so it's not just movement of physical objects. It could be manipulation of the electromagnetic spectrum, things like that. Yeah, and it happens all the time. You get into an office and you have a bad day in the office, the computer, the printer breaks down almost all the time. You know, it happens. Okay, so this is like reported incidents of people who are walk by and light bulbs burst and, and, and things like that. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, that, that... In the movie, The Man Who Stared at Goats, they show me just walking through a computer room and all the computers go down. That's not how it happened, but you know. By the way, what do you what do you? Th- I mean, I have a very strong opinion about that movie, but what do you what do you what do you what do you think about about that movie? It was sponsored by the psychops, you know, the ones who want to debunk the official debunker group. And it was designed to ridicule everything we did as a military unit. And I thought it was hilariously funny. I laughed all the way through it. I thought I thought it was funny too, but I it felt like a CIA op, honestly, to discredit the program so that nobody would take it seriously and not replicate it. Oh, they may have they may have had a hand in it too. I don't know. When they were out here filming for the desert scene at White Sands, they wouldn't let me on the set. I wanted to go see. And because, you know, they were ridiculing us. And 
I could have told him a whole lot more funny incidences that happened. <laughs> well, who, uh, who which, was who? Like, which characters were which characters? If you, I, I, uh, I didn't mean to take this on a... We'll get back to no, the, the real stuff. Fine. I'm just curious. Yeah. Lynn Cassidy. Well, every one of them in there, except I forget the character's name, the one who said at the wedding, went up and greeted the just married couple and said, too bad it, too bad it won't last. You know, that was a single person in the unit. But every other one in the that it showed was really a compilation because they had to compile like 20 years of people and incidents into a movie. And so the plot of the movie was fake. <clears throat> right. But the movie starts out, you wouldn't believe how much of this is true. The incidents that happened in there, they were true. I didn't kill the goat. I killed the computers. But like Lynn Cassidy was a compilation of about four people and used my name and my incidents in it. Also, you know, selection criteria and all that were sat there and identified what was in the sealed envelope and all. But yeah, it was, I thought it was a funny movie, you know. Uh, a lot of a lot of the guys in the unit got offended by it. And I didn't, I just enjoyed it for what it was. Okay, so going back to, you have this inf incident, General Stubblebeim recruits, well, he yeah. calls you into his office. Call me into the new commander's office. He and the new commander that he had just had the ceremony to install the new commander came in. I was sitting there in the in the new commander's office. And so when they came in, of course, I stood up and stood at attention. General Stubblebine walked by. He looked at my name tag and he said, are you Sergeant Buchanan? And I said, yes, sir. He said, good, follow me. He grabbed me by the arm and pushed me in front of him. <laughs> we walked into the new commander's office. He turned around to the new commander and he said, I need to talk to Sergeant Buchanan. Get out. <laughs> I got this evil, evil stare. And I can tell you what four-letter word list I went to the top of from the rest of the time I was from that day until the rest of the time I was there. But it took about two months. General Stubblebine brought me to DC and he was wanting to form a unit that would first of all destroy enemy computers with the end goal of trying to learn how to control enemy computers with our minds so that we could make missiles drop into the sea or turn around and go back at them or whatever. And Congress said, absolutely not, not going to fund that. So there was in D.C. He took me out to Fort Meade to this remote viewing unit. I'd never heard of it. And just dropped me there, basically, said, okay, he's, he's a member of your unit now. <laughs> And so they read me on, which is where they hand you a piece of paper 
that tells what the unit really does instead of what they tell the public they do. And I read the paper and I thought, this is stupid. The military doesn't do this. I'm on candy camera or something, you know. And I signed it. Ten years in jail, ten years in prison, $10,000 fine if you reveal the classified information. Now, I signed it and then started watching them over the next few weeks. And they were doing phenomenal work and getting accurate intelligence. And I thought, hey, if this works, yeah. And they were training the Inga Swan method. I was supposed to be trained by Inga Swan, but he lost his contract the day before I got there. So I was trained by the military members who had already been trained by Ingo. I got by the way, what what year was this? Was this 91? This was uh, 90. No, this was uh, 83. 83. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it sounds like the Augsburg thing happened in 87. 80. Must have been 80. Let me count back. I left in, I retired in 92. Okay. I'd been there for eight years, so that'd be 84. So I was in, uh, yeah, I was in Augsburg in, in 84. So this is right after Noble Archer, which was that huge exercise yeah. in 83. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Okay, and, so, sorry, sorry, continue. I just wanted to make sure I established the, the right timeline. That's right. You know, it's all gone foggy in my mind. It's all history now. Anyway, they put me in the unit and they started training me in the Ingus One method. And I took to it like a duck to water. And I've, it's the most interesting job I've ever had in my life. And sorry, what year was this again? This would be 84. Okay. Started training, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then who was who was at the unit at that time when you first joined? Oh, uh, let's see. Brian Busby was the commander. Oh, uh, Paul Smith, Joe McMonagle, Tom Tom McNear. There was also uh, a woman who was a civilian. That was Charlene. There was also one who came in at the same time that General had General Stobbine had brought in, who was named Dawn. And Dawn didn't stay. She didn't work out. There's one other I'm not thinking the name of right now. Yeah, but it was uh, it's mainly Paul, Tommy, oh Bill Ray, and myself. And uh, then Brian was the unit director. It was Brian a civilian or was he military? He, he was military. Yeah. So captain, major, colonel? I think a colonel. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Okay. So, so you get to the unit, you're observing. We were all, we were all playing close. So. We didn't wear we didn't wear uniforms and didn't even think of rank, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense, um, especially if you don't want to draw attention to yourselves, right? And then this is under the DIA's Science and Technology Division? When I got there, it was under the DIA, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you get there, you're observing for roughly two months. How does your training start? Oh, they started training me immediately. The training starts with stage one of the Angus One method. In stage one, they call out a gestalt. A gestalt is the basic aspect of something. So, like they say, water, wateriness is what it should have been called. They just call, Ingo called it water, so they called it water. But liquidity is the basic aspect of something. And I would go like this, make waves with a, with a pen on paper. Is this is the signal line? No, at this point, it's just training an automatic response to hearing a word. And you do this thousands of times to where it becomes just automatic. Land, and I'd make a straight line, flat line. Space, I would make a circle. Something manufactured, I would make something with an angle. and. They call these out over and over and over. And pretty soon it gets to where it becomes automatic. You're not thinking about it. And once that happens, you know that the subconscious is now doing it instead of the conscious mind. And in fact, you keep doing that. And it gets to the point where you will make the mark before they call the word. And that's when they know you're ready to go to stage two of your training. Stage two of your training, they say, okay, you told me there's land there. Describe the land. And, you know, I don't know. There's a picture in an envelope. I don't know what the land is like. Well, tell me what comes to mind. And you start doing that. and. You get descriptors, they open the envelope, and they say, look, this one is right. What were you thinking when you got that? This one is wrong. What were you thinking when you got that? And over a period of training with that, you get to where you're, you know which impressions are right and which ones are wrong. And once you get to where you have a good accuracy rate, with descriptors, then they go to stage three, which says, oh, you said, okay, there's a building on the land. Sketch the building. And you learn to sketch. And it goes through stage four, stage five, stage six, stage seven, and uh, gets to where you can get accurate information, but it takes practice, 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 practice. This is not something you learn. There are a lot of people out there on the internet having three-day classes and four-day classes. 
and poof, you're a remote viewer. <laughs> and, and they start and they start teaching it too. That's the oh, other. Well, they start teaching it, but the ones who taught them that have charged them for it. And now that's wrong, you know, because they're teaching them crap. They really are. And charging them for it. Okay. So you go through the training process. A question related directly to that, actually. So when you were doing kind of the water, land sort of questions, that would just be in an envelope? They would just say what's in the envelope and then you would do that or would they say yeah, they used they use pictures and envelopes yeah okay and these sort of it's, it sounds like the the equivalent of like battle drills basically so yeah mm-hmm. so when you're doing these drills how how long did that process last just the very beginning where you're doing the simple waterland it took me, I think, about two months before I was proficient enough to go into stage two. And when you went into, or at what point were you de- were you deemed operational? Actually, the way they did it, they had me doing these projects just to see what I would get. They didn't use my information. But Terry Waite was as Beirut hostage. Yeah, from actually about the first day out, they had me doing these full projects. I was totally untrained, probably had an accuracy rate close to zero. (laughs) And so they didn't use my stuff, but they gave me that training just to get me accustomed to what a project is like working on a project is like as i as i became good at the ideograms the gestalts then they would use me on a on a project and might use the gestalts that i gave and that's it and then and stage two, the descriptors and all. So they actually had me mock working projects from day one, but I knew they weren't using my, you know, it was just to get me accustomed to doing projects. And how long did it take you to become operational in terms of like you started getting an accuracy level where it was effective? About six months. Okay. And yeah. uh, when now, you sh- the information, though, that I was getting started being good after two months. But then the whole six month period is where you're learning the format, the protocols, the rules and regulations of, of the different stages, getting them to where they're automatic as well. And so it was a situation where they would use me up to the point where I was proving to be successful. Now, when you were in the unit, did you always have a monitor? Did you have a monitor in the beginning and then did more of this, 
I think what David Morehouse called extended remote viewing, or was it what you would call the controlled remote viewing the entire time? I was fully trained before they started doing the extended remote viewing, but I had a monitor the whole time I was in training for every session. It was after I became proficient that I learned how to be my own monitor. You know, that's for monitor training. Skip Atwater was the operations officer. And all of the monitoring that we learned was straight from him. He's a fantastic monitor. The monitoring, yeah, you can learn to, once you learn the procedures and protocols of monitoring, you can wind up monitoring yourself in a session. Okay, so six months you go operational, formally, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. What? sorts of missions did they put you on, at least that you can talk about now? Things like Grenada, also Afghanistan, Kuwait, all these, and just the events that came in from the Defense Intelligence Agency that they needed information on. A lot of it, we never knew what the operation was. Right, they just gave you two two sets of four digits, right? And that's what you started with. Actually, we started with two sets of six digits. I'm not sure where the four-digit thing came from. I think Dave invented that. I'm not sure. Yeah. But we had six digits. Well, actually, we used geographic coordinates whenever we could, if they were known. Yeah, that's uh, that's my understanding is it started with grid coordinates. Right. And, yeah. and and I think the reason they went away from that, according to Dave, and this makes sense, is that there's still there's some front loading associated with that. I know when I was at the National Training Center, I yeah. was there for so long that if somebody told me an eight gave me an eight digit grid, I could just point at a map or I could oh, yeah. just tell them where that was without even looking at it. So yeah, they you changed it. The are and all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know that. Oh, okay, that 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 grid designation is somewhere yeah. in the you know Southeast Asia. Or well, that was one reason they they quit the geographic coordinates. The other reason was if you have a missing soldier, you don't know what the coordinates are. So we had yeah. to come up with some fake numbers. Yeah. But the thing was, during the, you know, when we did a session, they never told us what the target was. Right. It was only afterwards we learned what the target was. Which is why it's, I'm still astonished that people, there are people out there who think it's, it's fake. Uh, it, yeah, I know. I, you know, like, I mean, there are examples even in training that David gives where your target's the Eiffel Tower and like, you just get, all you get are that you know are two sets of four four digits like an eight digit yeah. random number right that's all you get that's all you get and people will draw aspects of the gestalt of that target oh yeah absolutely yeah once you once you set up that line of communications with your own subconscious mind your intuition is in your subconscious it's not in your conscious mind your conscious mind is logical and once you learn to let that be the process. The English one technique is not psychic at all. It's an interview and report process where you interview your subconscious mind 
with a question, you get an answer. Question, answer, question, answer. And it's actually an interview and report process. So the protocol, the English one protocol, has nothing to do with being psychic. You can take that same protocol. Your subconscious knows why you do the things you don't want to do, but you do them anyway. Why you don't do the things you want to do, but they never get done. It knows everything that's in your memory. And uh, you can not only use the Ingus Swan protocol for spying, for, you know, psychic work. You can use it for self-enlightenment because your subconscious knows these things. Now, going back to some of the, you know, what other missions did you work on? I think you talked about Kuwait, Grenada. The Gulf War, we did intensively. We also did work on scientific and technological developments in foreign countries. It was against Presidential Order 12333 for us to use this on U.S. citizens. We couldn't spy on U.S. citizens without direct requirement from Congress. We had to have congressional approval on anything like that. Did that ever happen? It happened. Oh, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh And what sorts of scenarios would would, would that apply to? One, there was a rogue drug agent that had gone rogue and had been caught and had escaped. And we were tasked to find him. He was a U.S. citizen. But he was actually uh, an ATF agent who had gone rogue. And, you know, we found him. And he, he was outside the U.S. or where was he? He was actually inside the U.S. And it was a woman named Angela who who just absolutely pinpointed where he was. Name the spot. And then based on just a grid coordinate that somebody gave her not even a grid coordinate actually yeah you would know (laughs) right just a random number yeah Uh and how long did that take was it something like a target she had to work for a while or was it a session her sessions usually lasted like about 30 minutes interesting so so how would you cool down for one of these sessions my understanding is you have to be in a in an alpha or you don't have to be but but generally, it works best if you're in an alpha wave, brainwave state. Oh, uh, that is a it's a misconception. For some people, it's best. Every every remote viewer, even my students now, have to find out what method helps them helps them get all of the garbage of the daily thing out of mind so that they can focus on the session. Some people listen to the Monroe Hemisync tapes where, you know, it puts you into a concentration mode. I know Paul Smith used to listen to heavy metal. This, this heavy metal. Oh, God. Harsh <laughs> heavy metal. Uh, it just drive you crazy. 
Yeah, um, the beats the beats of heavy metal are kind of in that alpha wave eight to twelve yeah, hertz uh, range. Yeah. Oh, uh, I found through keeping data, I found that for me, if I meditate or something like that, I have a great feeling session that's almost always garbage. But if I line up work during the day. If I have this job to do, that job to do, that job to do, the session, the next job to do, the next job to do, just wham, 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 with no preparation, whatever, that's when I get my best results. And so for each different person, it's different. I know one of my students goes out and stacks rocks <laughs> because the concentration needed in stacking those rocks gets his mind off everything else. He stacks the rocks, balances them, does the session, and then goes about his day, you know. So in other words, for you, it was just like putting together a checklist for the day before I, you went out. A checklist. Quap, 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 quap. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. No, that makes, that makes total sense. It actually resonates a little bit because for me, if I were to do something like that, I'm not, I'm constantly worried about what's next. What I, what I have to do it. If I put it in a checklist, it's out of mind and it's that distraction's gone. Yeah. And that works best for me, you know, and what works best is not what feels best. What works best is when you score your session against the real target, what gets your highest score. On your best day, what, what were your scores as a percentage of accuracy? And by the and and by accuracy, my understanding is there are certain aspects of the target. If you mention it or included it in your report, you get a point. If you didn't include it in your report, well, I, I don't even know how you would track if if you put something that's completely irrelevant. But I'm just guessing there's certain aspects of the target, and you get a point. You get a point for a check, whatever for hitting all those aspects. If you miss some aspects, you just don't get a point. And then that's just how many, however many check marks you got divided by the, all the important aspects of the target. And then that's your, that's your accuracy rating. Is that accurate? Your not only your accuracy rating, but your also your dependability rating is the average of all of your accuracy ratings. I have many, many, many sessions that were 100% accurate. I have many, many sessions that were 20% accurate. <laughs> and so you average all those together, and that gives you a dependability rating for your viewing. Uh, I know of nobody who has a 100% dependability rating. Right. Uh, we're human, you know. It, but what what sort of range? What was a like a great remote viewer? How what kind of a rating might they get? And then what might an average remote viewer have? Almost without exception, our average was around sixty eight percent. Okay, so that's better than some of the best stock pickers in the world. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So what other when you were doing the Kuwait or the kind of the first Gulf War mission, there's been some, I guess, discussion of not, not just remote viewing, but remote influencing. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I was called into the office when very shortly after getting put into the unit. And Brian said, we collect intelligence here. We don't do active mental work. In other words, influencing. Yeah. And I said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to learn. Went out to my desk and Skip came by. And he said, you know, I guess he told you that we don't do active mental work here. And I said, yeah. And he said, that's right. We don't do active mental work here. And turned around and walked off. And you do it somewhere else. I don't know. I never found out <laughs> whether that happens or not. I don't know. Why did they decide to tell you that, though? Why did Brian? I mean, did it come up naturally no, or organically from as, discussion? As, just... a unit, as a unit, we were not to do active mental work. We were to do passive mental work. That is collect intelligence. That was our. That was their job. Is, but is there any reason why he just raised that out of the blue? Yeah, because he found out that General Stoberbein wanted me to do the active mental work. That's what I was there for. Uh, and that I got turned over to the remote viewing unit just because Congress wouldn't fund it, the active mental work. Now, did that, did that ever come back to you about active yeah. mental work? Like, did, did were you ever subsequently asked to do it by some other arm of the government or some other unit? Yes, it was. Yeah. One day I was over at the golf course eating lunch, and two men in black suits <laughs> came in and sat down and, and ordered coffee, and they were staring at me, and I, you know, I had I had been familiar with this before, and um, I got up and just walked out to my car. They got up and followed me out, shoved me over to their car, and started driving me around Fort Meade, and told me that they wanted some active mental work done. And this happened actually twice in the whole time I was there. I got approached, but not by our unit. Do you know who these or which agency or which arm of government they represented? Pretty much. Okay, but you can't talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, if there's anything, anything, I don't I don't want to push you on certain things, but if there's anything that you don't want to talk about, just tell me I can't or I, I don't want to talk about it and oh, yeah. I'll move on. Okay. Okay. But I will ask some some other questions about it. The the men in black suits, is this similar to reports for folks that show up after UFO activity? Same sort of men in black or just other? The way it works most of the time, okay, is you have a trained interrogator. And a person from a unit who needs information comes with a trained interrogator they they dress in the black suits so it's nondescript and always just immaculately dressed and all that. 
And the person from the unit who needs the information sits over to the side. The trained interrogator has a list of questions that has been provided to him. He will ask you those questions and shuffle them up and ask them in 10 different ways to see if you trip yourself up and all this. And as you do, the person from the unit that hired the trained interrogator sits over to the side and collects the information to take back to his unit. And the trained interrogator is trained to never react to anything you say. And so for most people, that means, oh, belligerent, you know, angry, whatever, you know, and that's what they report the men in black to be. Actually, it's just emotionless. Mm-hmm. And, and they do give you a warning at the end. Don't talk about this and all that. But I hear people say, oh, they threatened me with death or worse if I, you know, that's, that's bull. That they don't do that. So the question related to this, this topic, and I don't mean, I don't want to take too much of a diversion, but I'm fascinated with it. One of the things that's always fascinated me about these sort of interviews is that, and again, I could be wrong. It just doesn't seem to come out in the literature. But they never seem to identify who they are. Well, of course not. No. So, Lynn, I'm, I must be a different sort of character because if somebody came to my house and said, I'd like to talk, I would kind of say, who are you? Let me see some identification. And if they said, oh, no, I'm here with the government, I would say, go after yourself. Like, until you can show me some identification, I'm not like, I don't know if they're, I mean, for all I know, they could be FSB agents posing as U.S. government agents. Like, show me some ID or get the F out. Why don't people do that? Like, I I don't like, if they don't identify themselves, why do people talk? There is a sort of ambiance that they learn to use where it's very domineering, very, very commanding. And so, so how, people, how do they deal with people like me who 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 respond to aggression with aggression? They would turn around and leave. Okay. All right, good and to then, know. And then at some later time you would get a more demanding situation. <laughs> okay. I won't I won't I won't I won't ask you about that sort of thing. Okay. But yeah, I I I don't I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a tanker by training. So like yeah. you're trained to assault the ambushes and, and things like that. But, you yeah. know, if you don't show me ID, you, like, because I don't, again, I, I'm doing the right thing. Like, I don't, I don't know if you're, you know, a member of the U.S. government. You could be a member of a foreign intelligence service. I mean, that's what I would do if I were, you know, overseas working for oh, yeah. the CIA or DIA. I would say, hey, yeah, I'm with the FSB. I'd like to talk to you. Like, of course I would do that. Right. It's yeah. effective. So, okay. So, sorry to take you on that on that diversion. Okay. So, so to talk about remote influencing, what sorts of things would they not what they ask you to do, but what are the kind of sample missions that they might? Okay, I I don't know. Okay, because we didn't do that. However, the remote viewing, the remote influencing. The English One Protocols has a 
sort of a wedge at one part of stage four and stage six where you can influence a target instead of just collecting information on it. And they don't teach that. They didn't teach us that. I found out about it basically from Ingo, you know, and started sort of developing it on my own because I've always been interested in the PK, how to how to influence things and all that. So the thing is, most people think of remote influencing as remote control, and it's not. The remote influencing, you access a person at their subconscious level and you persuade them and to, you know, to do something or to think a certain way and all that. Then you go back and it's almost like uh, buyer's remorse. You know, they get to thinking about it. They go back to the way of thinking. And so to persuade somebody with the remote persuasion can take 50 to several hundred sessions before you finally persuade them and get them thinking the way you want them to think. It's not a thing where you say, you know, drive your car off the cliff. And, you know, that's that's Hollywood. But the remote influencing is better name remote persuasion. And it's slow and it's difficult and it takes a lot of work and effort. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it, it almost sounds like it's just like a interrogation where you just, over time, you just grind somebody down. And yeah. just through repetition, eventually they just say, fine, or, you know, okay, Basically. I can see your, your way of thinking or whatever. I You're just doing it. And, and you're uh, just doing just it remotely as, as opposed to physically and in person. That's right. And you find out what they would agree with. You get them, you know, like an insurance salesman gets you nodding yes and, oh, sign here. And then you sign, you know. It's it's called, it's oh. actually a thing. It's a psychological thing. It's called the four walls technique. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. And you start out, you, you get them to say yes, like four times. Or, you know, the, By the time the, you get them to say, you know, it's a nice day, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And, yes. you know, it's. And it's a sub, it's, it, like you said, it works at the subconscious level. It Again, it doesn't it doesn't work on me because I know it's coming, but most people don't realize it's coming. Yeah, and the fact is, it does work on you too. <laughs> well, you just did it, so yeah, <laughs> right, right. Well, it doesn't work on your conscious mind, right? But it can work on your subconscious level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you just got me to say yes two times. All right, so you've done a little bit of this remote influencing. You gave some examples of various. I mean, what kind of missions would you would you look at in, let's say, the run up to the Gulf War? You're looking at locations of, you know, the Republican Republican Guard units and things like that, or are you looking more strategic targets like leadership and command and control uh, locations? Scud missiles, uh, as an example. Oh, yeah. Finding missile emplacements, finding weapon stashes, and then going into a leader and finding their plans for the next day of battle, finding out which direction they're going to go, finding out what equipment they have, and, and such as that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how effective were those missions? So, so the units that would get the information 
my understanding is they they probably didn't know where it came from. It was also likely triangulated. So they weren't just getting your remote viewing results in isolation. They would also corroborate satellite data, human mass and all that good stuff. Yeah. Oh, and I totally agree with that because, you know, we weren't 100% accurate. I would never send out the troops on the word of a remote viewer. The information that we got was then turned over to the DIA to the analyst who would compare that information with spy the sky satellites, ground agents, eyewitnesses, radio intercept, and all this other stuff, and would compile it. And so it was thrown into the pot mm -hmm. and added information. And many times it added information that was critical to making decisions. Many times it was just totally ignored. Were there any situations like that where there's something highly critical that was totally ignored it turned out to be correct absolutely i had done a session that my report was drive saddam hussein oh west and then north do not drive him north if you do he's going to set uh, fire to all his oil wells oh so this is remote persuasion like a remote this is remote viewing i did a remote viewing session and my report was you know it was right at the time when when they were driving saddam hussein out and i said don't drive him north he will set fire to those oil wells drive him west away from the oil wells and then north and, and when you say uh, drive him what do you mean by that like oh the forces went in to force his people out of the region. Okay. Of, you know, and so they drove him north, and you know what happened. He set now fire to those. Yeah. Now, when he set fire to those oil wells, did he also use that to mask a chemical weapons? I'm not sure. Deployment? Okay. Well, I mean, just for the, just for the viewers. I think according to David Morehouse, that's that's exactly how he deployed them. So like Gulf War syndrome and things like that were caused by. Okay, that was super helpful. So so when you were in the unit and you noticed, not noticed, but you learned over time that this protocol was highly effective, useful, et cetera. Did it change you in any way once you learned that you could yeah. do that? Yeah. You cannot get in touch, you know, and communicate closely with your own subconscious mind without it changing you. For one thing, you start learning that it's smarter than you are and mm -hmm. it's faster than you are. And you start listening to your hunches. I know one time I was driving to work and I was on this road that had sharp curve on it and uh, I was going pretty fast and not too fast that it'd be dangerous for the curve. But as I was coming up to the curve, in my mind, I saw a man walking across the road with a dog and I slowed down turned the curve, 
And there was a man walking himself, walking his dog across the road. I would have run over him, you know. Also, there was one time when I was driving home, heavy, heavy traffic coming out of D.C. And it's on a uh, divided road. And I came to the turnoff place. I turned and was in the median waiting for this heavy traffic coming out of D.C. to have a break in it. Well, it didn't. And all of a sudden, my foot came off the brake, slammed onto the gas, and I went right straight out into that heavy traffic. I heard something hit in the back of my truck. I drove a pickup. And so I thought, I've caused a wreck. Somehow I got through that heavy traffic without being hit. However, on the other side of the thing, I thought, I've been in a wreck. I pulled over and stopped and got out and noticed that there was a stop sign in the back of my truck. <laughs> and I walked back to the intersection. A 16-wheeler had lost its front axle and had plowed right straight through where I had been sitting. It would have killed me. And somehow my subconscious knew about it, warned me. I had no conscious concept of what was going on. All I remember is I was holding the steering wheel like this, looked over, and this guy was coming right straight at me out of D.C. with his eyes going like this, you know, trying to trying to miss me. And, yeah, I walked back to the intersection. And here this 16-wheeler had plowed right straight through where I had been sitting. So my subconscious not only warned me about it, it took the action to save me from it and somehow got me through that heavy traffic. What about your colleagues? Did some people have a harder time dealing with this? I don't think so. All of the viewers of the unit have all these things to uh, report these incidents that happened that were what would normally be considered out of out of the ordinary. Yeah, we all had we all had these intuitive events that happened to us. Yeah. Any regrets? No, not at all. No. When did you leave the unit? When was your last? You were there for eight years. It sounds like 91, I think you said. Actually, it was January of 93. Yeah. Okay. So so did you stay on after you retired? 91. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. I was to stay on and stay on as a civilian. I reported to the Defense Intelligence Agency to get my civilian clearance. And about that time, there was this movement to close the unit down. And so instead of sending me back, they put me into the computer operations there, at the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I stayed there for, I guess, about a year and a half working the world's largest wide area network. Yeah. And then when I left 
the Defense Intelligence Agency is when I started my company, Problem Solutions Innovations. At that time, the the units work had not been declassified. And so I was working my company, data, data processing company, working with the computers. And there were also some people from various government agencies which approached me and said, can you teach us this? And I did in secret. When it became declassified, people found out that I had been the teacher in the unit. And all of a sudden, I started getting all these applications for training, like sometimes 80 a day from people that I was not going to train. <laughs> no way. You know? And so finally, it dawned on me, you know, I'm driving into D.C. every day, and I'm just going to quit and make my company full-time and start teaching it now that it's declassified. And I've never looked back. How, how many decades have you been teaching it thus far? Oh, counting the time in the unit. I went up the unit trainer. Good grief, I'm getting old. 30, 30 some odd years, yeah. Any trends that you've seen over that period? I mean, was there a, a huge rush of interest a decline, then an increase? Like, Oh, yeah. A uh, huge rush of interest from people who just were psychics who wanted to learn this new method, scientific method, you know. And they wound up being very good students. There were other people who were just woo-woo that, you know, flakes very quickly learn how to spot those and just say, no, we're full. There were others who had never had psychic experiences that they knew about or that they could recollect, who became interested and wanted to see what it was. And they became good students, too, for the most part. Generally, the best students that we've had come from that third group. They have no biases toward Psychic stuff, no biases against it. Also, since they're not psychics, they haven't formed a lot of bad habits. And so they wind up being some of the best viewers we have. And what sorts of walks of life do they come from, or even industries or everything? We had a lot of success with realtors, realtors who will show 10 houses and hope to sell one learn to basically read the person who's sitting across the desk for them. They show three houses and make a sale. And so for realtors, this is this was one of the first civilian applications that we had, aside from police work. We did police work. We've done a lot of science and uh, scientific and research development, R&D work for companies and corporations. We do a lot of pro bono work for police departments, finding missing evidence, missing people, missing children, and all that. Drug interdiction. We never charge the police for those. We just try to get the bad guys off the street. We do a lot of medical work, not healing, medical diagnostics to help doctors, but we do it with the doctors 
under the doctor's control, you know. The civilian applications that we're finding are are still blossoming. We're still almost every day finding more. Do hedge funds and like money managers use your oh yeah, stock market lottery, which I hate. <laughs> Does it actually work for the lottery? Do people actually use it and pick the right number? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Uh <laughs> one time while I was there at the Defense Intelligence Agency, there was nothing to do all day. Some $40 million that time, that week for the lottery. And so I spent eight hours that day figuring out the lottery numbers. This gets into another aspect of the remote viewing. Your personal psychology and your personal ethics and morals figure very greatly in at different times when the information you get is you know, related to those. And so there's this little Baptist kid inside of me that grew up in East Texas Baptist churches. You gamble, you're going to hell, you know? And so I got the six lottery numbers, headed home. I was working in D.C., but I lived in Maryland. And headed home, stopped at 7-Eleven, bought a ticket with those numbers. The next morning, I looked in the paper. I got all six numbers correct. And I went ballistic, $40 million. And then I looked. It was for the D.C. lottery. (laughs) A Maryland lottery ticket. And that little that little kid inside said, "See, I ain't going to hell now." <laughs> oh wow! Okay, and, uh, I have sat at roulette tables in Vegas, sat across from roulette tables, and the first time I did this, I predicted the where the slot the ball would drop in twenty two times in a row, just. Perfect score every time. I went over and I bet a dollar and lost it because I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you put money on it, it, it doesn't work. As soon as I put money on it, man, that was, I'm going to hell. <laughs> yeah, it's your subconscious kind of screwing oh, yeah. you, right? Yeah. It's that, child, it's that inner, inner child, yeah. Uh-huh. And all, right. all the thinking and all that, you know, that inner child is still there. All right. Well, thank you very much for all these insights. I really yeah. enjoyed learning about it. And I know I pressed you a lot on certain questions, but I'd like to get, oh, i like to yeah. put some detail to it. So uh, I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. Good. Okay. Good. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe and I'll see you next time.